When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I'm glad you joined us today. A reading from Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it, holds its fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner joined to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thou says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God, who, share, who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Barbara, for reading today and declaring the good news of God, the good news of restoration. Restoration looks different for every person. Uh, It looks different every single time and place. And yet it has the same essential quality that the things and the places in our lives that seem to be the most hopeless, uh, the the most broken, the most damaged, the most... uh, where the place of, of our greatest suffering, where we feel like we can never get it quite right, that things are gone forever, it is in those places that restoration happens. And here we see in this, one of the final songs of Isaiah, this word to uh, those who are from far away. They're called foreigners or sometimes aliens or resident aliens, or there's a number of names for people that come from another place to live somewhere else. Uh, Most of these names eventually take on a negative connotation um, because nativist sentiments always went out in all discussions of immigration. The claim that I was born here is somehow an ultimate claim that will always trump the claims of people who have more recently arrived somewhere. And yet, It is these people who will never be able to claim the ultimate card that gives them privilege and prestige. It is these people who will have the monuments built for them. It'll be these people who will have the name that will go on forever. It is these people who who will not be separated from the people of God. And I think that is one of the greatest fears that people who move from one place to another, we might call them refugees, immigrants, um, 
uh, whatever we call people, if we're Americans going to live in another country, we're called expatriates, expats. It's sort of a, sort of a nice way to, it's a, it sounds a lot better than immigrant or emigre or um, refugee or something like that. It sounds like, oh, a, a place of privilege, but all these terms will never, never, will always run the risk of being cut off. When the times get hard, uh, most nativist societies that are built around a certain ethnic identity or national identity will do terrible things to the people who have the least claim to it. We can see this all throughout American history, even though we are a nation that was formed from colonies from a number of places, but primarily the United Kingdom and England, really. And yet every time there'd be a new wave of immigration from some war around the world, whether it was in Asia or Eastern Europe, then laws would be passed and discrimination practices would be against the new wave of immigrants because they weren't truly, truly one of us. And it is these people, these people that God says, they will not be separated. The people that are the most vulnerable will have the greatest claim on the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus taught in his lifetime, um, and the Christian church has always taught that that, uh, many will come from the east and the west and sit down in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. The people who only claim their biological heritage um, will lose in that great realignment and shuffle where the first will be last and the last shall be first. So we don't, as Christians, we don't cling to our ethnic identities, uh, certainly our birthright as Christians. I was born a Christian or even uh, born an Episcopalian or something like that. Ultimately, we are grafted into union with Christ, and that is our unifying factor. The waters of baptism that has washed all of us is the, the unifying symbol of that entrance into life. Just as all of us um, uh, came into the world uh, it, in a similar way, no matter where that happened, um, we come into the into the community of Christ through baptism, and there's equality in that, um, and that's what this Isaiah passage is witnessing to, that whatever we try to put on others and say they're not really one of us, as Christians, as followers of God and the people of God, it is those people from far away who have the greatest claim, and that is a scandal that will always upset us just a little bit. That's kind of the point that Isaiah is making. And then he targets another, he talks about another group of people, the eunuchs. Eunuchs um, refer to men who have been castrated. Um, that's a pretty awful thing just to go down there. If you're a pet owner of a male pet, you know what that involves. Um, and you can imagine that being applied to a human being, usually as a child, um, so they could be sold into enslavement. And eunuchs were highly valued in many ways in the time of Isaiah and the ancient world, um, because they were seen as being sort of neutral when it came to trying to create their own legacy in the world. Um, the most dangerous thing for, any, for anyone to be faced with is the, an ambitious person who is trying to create a dynasty. Every king, every governor, every head of a little town was worried about someone else trying to create a dynasty like they had created or their ancestors had created to replace them because that's how you did it. You would get your child to be in a position of power greater than your own and eventually 
the families that were there would be replaced. And this was a great fear. So anyone who was sort of rising through the ranks that had a family of kids, had a legacy, was dangerous. Eunuchs were seen as more neutral. They couldn't father children and therefore couldn't create the kind of dynasty that ruled most of the world up until the modern period and, and still actually rules a lot of the world today. Um, as, as royalty has not stopped existing um, in places like Europe and, and elsewhere. But it is these eunuchs who don't seem to have that same ability to create a legacy that get the greatest legacy in the kingdom of God. To the eunuchs, I say, who say, the eunuchs say, I am just a dry tree. Their family tree ends with them. Jesus distinguished three kinds of eunuchs. And he, he said in his teaching, there are eunuchs that are made so by men that through really a form of child abuse and um, enslavement, uh, children were castrated forcibly against their will. Um, and then he said there's eunuchs um, who are born that way. I don't know who he's talking about there. Um, these are the mysteries of Jesus. Um, but people that perhaps do not... Uh, do not intend to reproduce biologically for whatever reasons. Hard to say. Um, and then there's eunuchs for the kingdom of God. These are people like Jesus himself who, while um, certainly being biologically capable of having children and things, did not because of the, the call of the kingdom of God. And these three kinds of eunuchs sort of are there present in Jesus' teaching. And the idea that the horror of being childless, as we talked about yesterday in the ancient world, and the horror that that exists today for people, the fear and anxiety about that, um, is what Isaiah is talking about. He's saying, if, you, if the family tree ends with you, that's not true in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, it is the eunuchs who say, I'm just a dry tree. Um, the eunuchs who keep the Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. An everlasting name that will not be cut off. We're talking about wordplay here. Um, a promise of restoration that points to the original wound of being a eunuch. Um, and this is what God does in every place in everyone's life. Um, in the kingdom of God, that the things that have been cut off, the things that have been, um, that we have lost, the things that we lament and grieve and are sad and angry about our whole lives are restored in the kingdom of God, in Jesus Christ, in little ways in this world and in big ways in the world to come. We get glimpses of that in this world and we get it fully in the world to come. And that is what Isaiah is saying, a message of hope for each of us, that the, the seemingly impossible things for us are very much possible with God. And faith is believing that and trusting that. Not 100% all the time. And um, I'm sure those eunuchs who heard this being said to them, you know, probably had a laugh later that day with their fellow eunuch friends and <laughs> said, did you hear what Isaiah said about us um, today? But you know what? Um, that is ultimately um, the truth of, of, of God's kingdom. And trusting that a little bit is what faith really is. Believing that a little bit, maybe not for ourselves, but for someone else, 
and then ultimately for ourselves. Because this is what God is doing. This covenant God has made with us is a unilateral covenant on God's side. It is not dependent ultimately on us. It is dependent on what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. It is what the psalm witnessed to that Melanie chanted, Psalm 69, that is, is speaking the words of Jesus from the cross. They gave me vinegar to drink, he says. When I was thirsty, they gave me vinegar to drink. Um, he says, um, the suffering servant is the sign of God's love for us, that in our suffering, all that suffering is absorbed into the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And there is nothing in our experience that is not experienced by God himself. And so that all of our losses and sorrows and pain is absorbed into him. And he holds that and he restores that. That's how he has the power to do that. And that's what Isaiah is saying. So take heart today as the power comes back on and the sun comes back out here in Texas and wherever you are. Um, hopefully you have a good weather day as well. But that is what God does. The cycle of dying and coming back to life is real and it happens even to the eunuchs, even to the foreigners. Amen. Other who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Today is a number of feast days but um, we'll be highlighting the, the Dorchester chaplains today. Um, St. Blaise is feast day is today. Um, not officially, I don't think. Maybe it's still in some calendars. St. Blaise uh, was a bishop and a physician from very early in Christianity, the fourth century, who, while being led uh, to being tortured and executed for his faith, a woman who had a ch- only child, one child who had a fishbone stuck in its throat, her, her, his or her throat, I'm not sure, I think it was a son, stuck in his throat, brought uh, this child to St. Blaise as he was being taken out to be executed. And St. Blaise touched his throat and healed the child. And so St. Blaise, uh, blessing of the throats, is a tradition in Christianity ever since then. The candles that are blessed at Candlemas on February 2nd, Groundhog Day, are then used to bless throats on St. Blaise Day, the day after. So when we make candles on Sunday night at Three-Legged Goat at 6 p.m., if you would like to get your throat blessed, um, you may, it seems kind of archaic. Um, You know, it's not real medicine or anything. But last time I checked, people are still having throat problems. And um, I certainly do on some days. So um, always good to invoke God's blessing on our on the things that that help us communicate with each other, our throats, and eat, and all the other things we do. But today is also February 3rd, the Dorchester chaplains, George Fox, Alexander Good, Clark Poling, and John Washington. Um, they They live in our memories, especially for 
army chaplains and chaplains of the military, but also all chaplains. The word chaplain uh, comes from capillon, the French for the cape guy, the guy that carried the cape. Um, the little building, they would put the cape of St. Martin. Martin famously is a Roman soldier who cuts his cape, his Roman army cavalry cape in half to give half of it to a beggar who was freezing and naked in, the, in a French village in um, Roman Gaul, France. Um, and he gives this to him. And later that night, Jesus meets him and says, thank you for giving me that cape. I want you to follow me as a Christian. And Martin becomes uh, a deacon, a priest, and a bishop eventually, and a monk who is a church planter in rural areas where most people at the time wanted to stay in the cities. Uh, Martin went out to what we might call today Trump land and planted a lot of churches out in the middle of nowhere where the people that uh, worked in the forests were um, would, would come to and be part of. And so um, he was eventually made a bishop and his cape was preserved as a relic in France. It is the blue of the French flag. Martin's cape is the, the blue recognized there. And um, the little little building that they would take into battle with them and French armies would take um, a little mobile um, shrine that they would carry of Martin's cape because he was a soldier to give them courage and strength. Um, the, the little uh, cape building and the cape man or the cape priest, the little priest that would go along with it, um, became known as the chaplain. Um, the word chapel comes from Martin's cape and the little building, mobile building that carried it. And, um, and the priest that administered it was also the... So from very early on, the priests and clergy going with soldiers into battle and caring for them afterwards and before um, is the tradition of chaplains, even though that word is now applied to school chaplains and hospital chaplains and others. It is that idea that they are embedded in an institution. And these four men were um, volunteered to serve in the U.S. Army during World War II, um, in the 1940s, as the war was really ramping up in Europe, they volunteered. They were all clergy from a variety of different places. Um, George Fox was a Methodist from, I think, the Midwest. Alexander Good was Jewish, a Jewish rabbi. Clark Poling was Dutch Reformed from Michigan, I believe, or New Jersey, I think, Michigan. And John Washington was a Roman Catholic priest. So you kind of see that blend of um, American religion at the time uh, being represented by these four, um, two Protestants, a Jewish rabbi, and a Catholic priest. Um, and they were on a transport ship. It was a, a, a liner, a, a, a passenger ship that had been uh, converted to a military vessel, the USAT Dorchester. Um, it was a cruise ship, technically, but really more of a passenger ship that was converted for carrying troops um, they were being sent to Greenland to establish a radar base there. So they were um, sailing uh, in the, in the north, north of New York City with 902 uh, people on board, soldiers and crew. Um, George Fox had served as a medical corps assistant in World War I, where he was decorated for heroism. He was the oldest of the group, I believe, um, having been a World War I veteran. So I think he was in his late 40s maybe 50s at the time. Alexander Good had joined the National Guard while he was studying in rabbinical school. Clark Poling's father told him that chaplains had a high mortality rate, 
So he prayed for strength and courage and then joined the Army Chaplain Corps. And John Washington was a gang leader in New York, Newark, New Jersey, when God called him to the priesthood. So they all have, um, you know, lives before becoming uh, Army chaplains. But on February 3rd, one day from their destination in Greenland, a German U-boat fired torpedoes striking the boiler room of the Dorchester. Even though everyone was sleeping with their life jackets on, many of the soldiers had left them behind as they ran out of their bunks um, to go topside as the klaxons were sounding to escape the sweltering heat below decks, which these ships were very warm below decks, even though it was very cold out. Unfortunately, only two of the 14 lifeboats were successfully lowered into the water, making it necessary for most men to dive into the 19-degree water. The four chaplains were there on deck, and they were helping and calming and passing out life jackets from the ship's store to those that were forced to jump into the freezing ocean. And eventually they gave up their own life jackets um, to save the lives of their soldiers. And they remained on deck, arms linked. was the last anyone saw them um, before the ship went down. 230 men were rescued from the icy waters by other ships in the convoy. They would put out dragnets or um, rope nets off the sides of the ship and catch as many as they could in the dark. And uh, 230 were rescued, many because of the heroism of these four chaplains. And the memory of their self-sacrifice is maintained today within the United States Military Chaplain Corps. So we thank God for these four chaplains and who represent um, the best of the chaplain corps, for sure. Um, the words of Jesus are often invoked when in their memory from John 15. Greater love has no one than this, than they lay down their life for their friends. Holy God, you inspire the Dorchester chaplains to be models of steadfast and sacrificial love in a tragic and terrifying time. Help us to follow their example that their courageous ministry may inspire chaplains and all who serve to recognize your presence in the midst of peril. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. They were held up during their, shortly after their death by the U.S. government. There was a commemorative stamp issued with their pictures on it and a number of other Honor, honorifics. There is a four chaplains chapel um, in Washington, D.C., and a community that remembers them. Um, and their story lives on.